The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Um, how many of you remember that we were studying the book of Exodus at one point? A handful of you. Well, we were back in 2003, and uh, we're going to return now. December is not a time for continuing exegetical teaching on Sunday evenings, and we've enjoyed some great worship and some great music, but now we're returning to our study in Exodus, and we're looking at Exodus 17, <clears throat> verse 8 through 16. I will not ask how many of you knew what chapter we were in. That would be another question entirely. But we're halfway through Exodus 17, and uh, just to set the context, Israel is making their way through the, prom- through the uh, um, desert en route to the promised land. They have a, uh, a date with God at Mount Sinai. That was to be the sign that Moses would receive. That's how he knew that Israel was called out of Egypt by his hand by Moses' leadership. This is the sign, this is how you'll know when you worship me at this mountain. And that hasn't happened yet, and they're en route there. But as they go, they're facing some trials and some difficulties along the way. Um, They have to do with Israel's physical dependence on God for food and water. And the last trial, the beginning of this uh, chapter in Exodus 17, was the story of the water from the rock. They've already seen God miraculously provide water twice. Uh, This is the second time at Rephidim. And they've already seen as well the beginning of the manna coming bread from heaven. And so that's the context. Now listen at Exodus 17, 8 through 16 as the Amalekites come and attack them. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with his sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, we have seen a consistent pattern of trials in the wilderness. The painful purpose of the wilderness, as some have called it, is the testing and strengthening of Israel's faith. In Deuteronomy 8.2, it says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Our God is a God who humbles us. Our God is a God who tests us. This morning as I was preaching on scripture memorization and I was talking about the the temptation that we might feel to be prideful. And I said, you're already prideful. And some of you laughed. And I understand that, but the fact is that's at the root of our sin nature, isn't it? Our pride. And we must be humbled 
all of us. It's not unique to one or the other. Some struggle with pride where others struggle with other sins. We all struggle with pride, every one of us. And so we must be humbled, and we must have these trials, and God wants to test us in order to see what is in our hearts, whether or not we will obey God. And so it was for Israel. John Calvin said in the Institutes, the beginning of the Institutes, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. I've quoted that before, but I think it's so profound, and it really is true uh, in terms of the journey through the desert. Oh, how Israel learned what they were really like. Oh, how their nature was displayed day after day. And also how they had opportunity as well to learn what God is like and how faithful he is. Now, I'm setting the scene for this attack of the Amalekites because you must understand that nothing comes about except by the providential care of God. The Amalekites attacked by God's providential care. Not earlier and not later, but that God might teach them to rely on him totally in times of warfare. And so the lesson is one, ultimately, I think, of prevailing prayer, of spiritual beggars who go to war. And our warfare may not be physical, probably won't be, but we have spiritual warfare. We're at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we will prevail in the same way that Moses did, by lifting up hands to God. That's the central spiritual lesson of this, that we might learn how to go to war uh, filled with faith and trust in God. And that's also what God intended as well. God did not shelter Israel from Amalek. He could have. Uh, he could have rained down boulders from heaven and, and uh, destroyed the Amalekites before they ever got close to Israel. God could have done that just like he could protect you from every single trial in your life. He could protect you from every financial trial, every trial of health or relationship or job or any of those things that make difficulties for you. He could do that if he wanted to. It would be very little difficulty for him to do that. But he doesn't choose to do that. Instead, he wants to strengthen your faith and to give you encouragement as you go through trials and you see him faithful. And so Israel had to learn how to go to war. Now for them, it was definitely physical. The Amalekites meant to destroy them. The Amalekites meant to kill them with the sword. They meant to wipe them out. This was a physical attack. They had to learn how to go to war. The promised land also would not simply be given to Israel. They had to fight for it. And many of these folks had never been to war before. And so they had to learn. And so God wanted to bring them through this. God providentially orchestrated this, just as he orchestrated later, uh, during the time of the conquest of the Promised Land at Joshua, you remember how all the northern kings decided to assemble together all at once and fight Israel. And you can imagine how daunting that was as they saw the number of, of warriors against them like the grains of sand on the seashore. It must have been overwhelming for them. But in effect, God was saying, we're just being efficient. We're just going to get it all done in one battle. Right? Why go from, from little kingdom to little kingdom? Let's do them all at once because God is more than capable of wiping out all of these northern kings. And so in Joshua 11:20 it says, For the Lord, it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so those northern kings in Joshua 11 came at the direct command of God, although they didn't know it at all. And that's the way it is uh, with God's providential ruling over our enemies. They don't know that God is ruling over them, but he is. And so the Lord orchestrated that. And is it too much then to uh, think that he orchestrated also this attack from the Amalekites? Now realize that God does nothing evil. I think it's rather that the Amalekites had evil purpose and God didn't thwart it. 
The Amalekites had evil intent and God didn't stop it, but rather used it in the end to bless and to strengthen Israel. Later, God would orchestrate uh, that some of the enemies would remain in the promised land specifically to teach Israel war. It says in Judges 3, 1 and 2, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. That's in Judges chapter 3, uh, verse 1 and 2. So you can see the wisdom of God as he orchestrates all of these things. Israel would have to conquer the promised land by the edge of the sword. And in so doing, they would provide physically what became for us spiritual truth. We will advance in the kingdom only by warfare. Satan's not going to give up any of his territory easily. We will not have an easy ride to the advancing of the kingdom. We're not going to have an easy ride in missions or in evangelism or in prayer or in sanctification. Every foot of ground is going to be contested. And so we must be tough. We must be warriors. We must put on our spiritual armor and fight and stand our ground. This is the lesson, the physical lesson of the Old Testament, always spiritual in the new. And so we must be faithful in these things. Now realize earlier God had, through his wisdom, decided not to allow Israel to face warfare. Do you remember this? It says uh, in Exodus 13, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, even though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Isn't that incredible? God has a sense of timing to all these things. In Exodus 13, they're not ready to face military conflict. Not yet. Because God knew their hearts. And he said, they're not ready. They might change their minds and go back to Egypt. In Exodus 17, God deems clearly that they're ready because the Amalekites come. Now, what lessons are we going to learn in this? Well, the spiritual lessons are a humble reliance on God in re resulting in fearless battle against the enemy. We're humbly relying on God, beseeching him with hands stretched out toward God and in prayer, and we're fearless toward the enemy. Now, we'll see in the history of Israel later that they tended to do the exact opposite. Not humbly relying on God at all and fearful in the face of the enemy, and that's why they had to wander an extra 40 years in the desert. But this was the lesson that God intended with the Amalekites. Now, who are the Amalekites? What is the context of Amalek's aggression? Well, first, the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. They were Esau's, uh, Amalek was Esau's grandson in uh, Genesis 36:12. So already we don't have the basis of a good relationship between the Amalekites and the Israelites because of the struggle between Jacob and Esau. These are Jacob's descendants and these are Esau's descendants ultimately. And so there was that r same wrestling that there had been in the womb between Jacob, uh, between uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. So we see also from their two descendants, there's a natural antipathy, a natural hatred between these. But I think there's a more practical reason than this. At the beginning of the chapter, you'll notice that God opened up a well for the uh, Jews. He opened up water in the desert. Well, that's like gold. I mean, it's more valuable than gold in the desert. That's life itself. And over and over in the book of Genesis and in many other places, these people fought over wells. They fought over water. And so I think what happened was the Amalekites heard that there was a, a river in the desert where that came from. They, I'm sure, had no idea, but they wanted that water, and so they came, and they came to fight. 
at Rephidim, a place that had been with no water, but now all of a sudden it was worth its weight in gold, or more than that, because it had water. Now in verses 9 and 10, we start to see human leadership. Now what's interesting to this is clearly a mixing together of God's sovereignty and his power and human responsibility in the middle of this. Whenever Moses' hands are up high, they're doing well. When his hands are drooped down, they're doing poorly. So clearly this is a lesson on human involvement in divine things. It isn't automatic that they're going to do well in the, in the, in the battle. It isn't automatic that it's going to go well. There needs to be human effort put forth. We see it at the beginning of the account with Moses' leadership. It's so important to have good leaders, isn't it? So important to have godly men who know what to do. Moses doesn't wilt. He doesn't crumble at this time. He knows precisely what to do. He's going to go up on that hill, and he's going to take the staff of God with him. And most certainly, he's going to beseech the Lord of heaven to give them victory over the Amalekites. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. So we see somewhat of a chain of command here, don't we? Uh, although we don't see God directly commanding Moses, we know that, that God is consistently communicating with Moses. And so it goes from God to Moses, and then it goes from Moses to Joshua. And then it goes from Joshua to the men that are chosen out, the leaders of the tribes, and then down from there. A hierarchy, really, a specific chain of command. Now, human leadership, therefore, is essential to the purposes of God. We must have human beings who will stand forth and do what God wants them to do. We must be willing to stand in the gap. We must be willing to go out and be mustered by Joshua and take our place in the battle line or go up on the hill with Moses and intercede with the God of heaven. It's not for us to say, we have a mighty God who already whipped up on the Egyptians. What do we need to do? Just stay in the tents and let God do it all. Well, that wasn't God's plan. He definitely wanted the Jews to go out and fight. And so, yes, it is true that God carries us as a father carries his son. It says it in Deuteronomy uh, 131, in the desert you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries a son all the way you went until you reached this place. And yet, even as that image is true, and we must rely on that concept, God is carrying me like a father carries a son, yet at the same time he's training the son in warfare, training the son in courage and in standing firm, training the son in prayer. And so there's a mixture there. Do you have a sense of God's everlasting arms under you, carrying you? You really must in the Christian life. A sense that God is with you through all of your trials, and he will not let you go, but he sustains you and strengthens you. And were it not for that, you would certainly have failed and fallen away from Christ years and years ago. But yet at the same time, God wants you to take your place in the battle line or up on the mountain that you would be a uh, faithful prayer warrior. And so we see human leadership. We see Moses' leadership. We see also a combination of prayer and action. It's not enough just to pray, is it? And it's not enough just to act. There's got to be a combination of these two things. William Gurnall, who wrote about a 700 about a 700-page commentary on the Ephesians 6 passage on spiritual armor. Think about that now. 700 pages on about 10 verses. That's Puritan writing for you. Page after page on the helmet of salvation. How many pages can you do on the shield of faith? Well, if you're a Puritan, you can probably do about 200 on the shield of faith. How about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? This is William Grinnell, and it's great writing. It really is. But Grinnell said this about prayer. 
He said, we must join our endeavor in the use of all means with our prayers, whether they be uh, put up for spiritual or temporal blessings. What is he saying? He said, we've got to be willing to do what's at our hand to do in addition to praying. Use means in our life. We must pray with our hand at the pump or the ship will sink in sight of our prayers. Think about that now. Imagine you're out in a, in a leaky boat and you've got a bilge pump, hand-operated bilge pump. And instead of operating the bilge pump, you kneel down and pray. And you do nothing but pray. What's going to happen to you? You're going to sink. It just seems to be God's way that you're going to sink. And why? Because God doesn't want you to pray? No, I think he wants you to pray while you're operating the bilge pump. That seems to be what William Grinnell is saying. Get that pump going, but be sure, be sure that you offer prayers and intercede. And so we see in this story of the battle with the Amalekites a great blending of prayer and energetic human effort. So is there something in your life, I mean, are you sinking? I mean, are you operating the bilge pump? Are you doing what's necessary? You may be having financial difficulties. It isn't enough to beseech the God of heaven, but you also must be faithful to do the things that are your responsibility to do. And God may let you sink a little more than you feel comfortable with until you step forward and do those things he's calling you to do. And I don't always know what they are, but I do know that I have a role to play. Conversely, however, if we're only doing those things that are ours to do and we are not kneeling down in faith-filled prayer, then we are also going to be sinking. There's just a great combination here in this account. Now we see Moses' leadership. We also see Joshua's leadership. Joshua goes out and he chooses an army. He chooses out men for himself that are going to be strong leaders and he's going to lead them out in battle. Now I have a question as I was looking at this account. Where in the world did they get their weapons from? Did you wonder that? I, I don't know the answer. Could be that they washed up on the shore with the Egyptians who drowned at the Red Sea, and that's not so far-fetched. They may still be attached to their belts or something like that. I don't know, but I know it says in Exodus 14.30, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. So it could be that they had swords and weapons that had washed to the shore with the Egyptians. Beyond that, uh, it could be that they had weapons from the original plundering of Egypt. It's not usually the uh, strategy of masters of slaves to give them lots of weapons. It's not usually done. And so you wonder where they got it. Either that or we take a literalistic reading that says Joshua destroyed Amalek with the sword and it was just that Joshua was the only one fighting. But I have a hard time believing that. So I think probably they got their weapons from the dead Egyptians, although we can't be sure. Now we get to the central lesson in verse 11 and that is total reliance on God. Look at verse 11 again. <clears throat> as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now here a lesson is taught, I think that is very clear. I referred to it a little bit this morning in John chapter 15, and that is simply this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you not see that? It isn't just a matter of Joshua and the sword. Isn't it very clear that God is saying, when you are not beseeching me, you're losing. And so apart from my efforts, apart from my exerting forth spiritual effort for you, you will lose to the Amalekites. That is the first lesson that's taught here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You are spiritual beggars. And if you do not beseech the God of heaven, you will lose. I think that's what's being taught here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God hates human arrogance. Especially, it seems, that he has a special hatred for military arrogance. Consistently in Israel's history, he's going to command them to do odd things when it comes to the military. Have you noticed this? 
For example, the uh, battle, as I mentioned, uh, Joshua versus the northern kings of Canaan. This is in Joshua 11. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. Now listen, you are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Now this makes no sense militarily, doesn't it? I mean, how many times do you see in some of these movies where the cannons are facing one way and then they conquer and then they turn the cannons around and face them back on the ones who had just previously been firing them? The weapons will fire either way. They don't care. They're inanimate objects. The horses will, will pull the chariot for whoever's in control. Why then hamstring the horses? Why burn the chariots? Is it not clear that God does not want Israel relying on horses and chariots? He doesn't want them relying on the arm of the flesh. Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, it says in Psalms. We're not going to rely on military power to conquer the promised land. We see the same thing in the story of Gideon and the Midianites. Gideon, you have too many men for me to win the victory here. Send them home. And he whittles his army down to 300 men. 300 rejects, it seems to me. 300 of the lowest sort who lap water like dogs. Those are the ones that are going to go out and win a great victory. And why? So that you will not be able to boast against me that it was by the arm of your might that you conquered your enemies. And then there's Jehoshaphat who led with his choir. Not generally the way to do it, but he, the lesson was clear. You're going to go out and worship me and you're going to praise me and I'll win the military victory. And it's not just these three examples, but again and again, God does odd things around the issue of military conquest and military victory. I worry sometimes about our own government. I worry about where we're at in history. Do you realize that the United States government spends 50% more on military than the next 19 out of the top 20 countries combined? If you take the ninth from, from number two down to 20, add them all up, and multiply by 1.5, you have less than the amount we spend on military. That's shocking to me. It's amazing. Now, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I love military history. I love these kind of things. But I, I fear that we may get into trusting too much in military hardware and technology and a large army and forget this lesson, that a nation is not safe because it has a huge army. A nation is not safe because it spends $379 billion on military. Do you know that we increased our military expenditure by more than the United Kingdom spent in military last year? And that's their number two on the list. We, we increased by that much. I fear that we may be led into trusting too much in military and not enough in the God of heaven. Is that not an application from our lesson today? That we should be going out with our hands outstretched to God in faithful prayer. And I'm grateful for a president that it seems is a man of prayer. I hope that he is ultimately trusting in God. But for us, as the people of God, we must be careful about this and not trust overmuch in military hardware or the size of our army. Now, what is Moses' work? What is he called to do up on that hill? Well, he's called to pray. And he's called to pray in a knowledgeable, in a fervent, effective, sacrificial, and prevailing way. Let's look at the prayer life of Moses up on that hill. First of all, O. Hallisby said this about prayer. The work of praying is prerequisite to all other works in the kingdom of God. It is by prayer that we couple the powers of heaven to our helplessness and make the impossible possible. We couple the powers of 
heaven to our powerlessness. Isn't that a great phrase? He also said in another place, some people speak of praying for the work of the kingdom when prayer is the work of the kingdom. Prayer is hard work, isn't it? Can you say amen to that? And so it's actually reasonable for us to have a sermon on scripture intake in the morning and on prayer in the evening as we begin the year 2004. If I could urge you to do anything else, it would be to be faithful in these disciplines of Bible intake and prevailing prayer. We must be faithful in prayer. It seems that this account teaches us that Moses' prayer, in effect, had greater outcome on the battlefield than Joshua's sword. Isn't that about the case? I mean, Joshua's sword did something. Had it not been for Joshua's sword, they would have lost. It's true. But Moses' prayers seemed to have greater impact because whenever he stopped praying, uh, Joshua's sword started to lose. But not just any prayer. We need, first of all, knowledgeable prayer. Why did he go up and stand on the mountain? Well, it's so he could see the outcome of the battle. He could watch and see what was actually going on. He could see moment by moment the progress of the battle. I believe we pray better when we have personal knowledge of the needs. The better you know somebody, the more faithfully and more accurately you can pray. We should be, I think, more active in asking, how can I pray for you, brother or sister? What's going on in your life? So we can know enough. And to me, this is one of the great joys of being part of a church. I really enjoyed my time at Christ Baptist in Raleigh last week, but I miss being here because you're my family. I mean, you know me and I know you better than I know those people in Raleigh. And there's a sense of being in community together. And part of it is knowledgeable prayer, is it not? That we can know each other and know what's going on in each other's lives. We also have a good picture here of Moses, I mean, in Moses of Christ's intercessory prayer life for us. It says in Hebrews 7.25 that Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christ? Always living to intercede for you. But what the, the verse in Hebrews 7.25 says is he is able to save completely or to the uttermost or to the very end of your salvation, those who come to God, because he prays for them. Do you see the, the weight of that logical connection? It is through Christ's prevailing knowledgeable prayer over you that you're able to finish your spiritual battle and your spiritual journey. Jesus never sleeps, but he prays for his people. And he has the ear of his father. Everything he asks for, he gets. And so he's constantly up on the hill, as it were, looking over your life and praying for you. I, I think it's also interesting to me how Moses learned the cause and effect between his prayer and the battle. He's up there in the mountain, and he's looking down and watching. When he lowered his hands, don't you think he probably at that moment felt he'd prayed enough? I mean, his hands were getting tired and said, well, I gave it some good prayer. Let's rest for a little while. And how long do you think it took him to start noticing, wait a minute, uh, things aren't going too well right now. I don't know if they were wearing uniforms or they just had different, but he just said, hmm, it's starting to go left and it was going right. Or it's starting to go right and it's going left. We're not doing well. Better pray some more. So up it goes again. And so he's praying and then his arms get tired and he starts to notice. And, you know, as a spiritual person who's also a scientist, an observer of cause and effect, saying, wait a minute, I see a connection here between my prayer life and the outcome. And you know what this teaches me? We learn spiritual things by living. Not just by reading them in the book, but by actually living them. We can see it's not going well for me today. Did I have a quiet time? Not really. Hmm, I'm not really walking with God. Maybe I need to be more faithful in my personal devotional life. We just learn that by experience. 
So it was in this prayer, knowledgeable prayer. Secondly, we see fervent prayer. E.M. Bounds, who wrote a great deal on prayer, said this, Desire gives fervor to prayer. The soul cannot be listless when some great desire fixes and inflames it. Strong desires make strong prayers. The neglect of prayer is the fearful token of dead spiritual desires. There can be no true praying without desire. If you don't want it, you're not going to pray for it. Isn't that axiomatic? If you don't want it a lot, you won't pray strongly for it. Do you think Moses cared whether Joshua conquered the Amalekites that day? Of course he did, because once the Israelite men were slaughtered, then they're coming after the women and children, and the whole thing is over. And so he cared intensely about the outcome of that battle, and he prayed fervently. It was a fervent prayer. And by the way, fervency is more important than the words you pray. I'm not saying more important than what you pray for, but I mean clothing it in perfect words, that's not so important. God cares an awful lot more about the intensity and the heat and the fervency of your prayer. Samuel Rutherford put it this way. Words are but the body, the garment, the outside of prayer. Sighs are near the heart work. A mute beggar gets alms at Christ's gates, even by making signs when his tongue cannot plead for him. Christ knows what we need before we ask. Isn't that what it says? And so for you to just go to God and groan before him in prayer sometimes is the greatest praying you can do. Fervency is what God's looking for. Knowledge in prayer and also fervency. Thomas Brooks put it this way, cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. Have you ever prayed a cold prayer or a formal prayer? I have. They're hypocritical prayers. They're just box-checking prayers. But they're not the real prayers that God answers. And so there must be fervency in prayer. Thirdly, they must be effective. Were Moses' prayers effective? In other words, did they produce an effect? Well, yes, you could see it. Hey, we're winning. Keep it up, Moses. Hey, we're losing. Get back to prayer, Moses. You can see the effects of his prayer. It says in James 5:16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The Greek word is energeo. There's an energy, there's an effect that comes from prayer. Are your prayers effective? Do they produce anything? Moses' prayers produce an effect because they were consistent with the will of God. Was it consistent with the will of God that Moses prayed, Oh Lord, please don't let Amalek wipe us out today? Yeah, it seemed very consistent with the will of God. And so they were effective prayers, fervent and effective. They brought about an effect or an impact on the battlefield. Fourthly, they were sacrificial prayers. A little while ago, I put a, um, a floodlight up on my roof um, so that we could, well, quite frankly, play basketball at night. That's why we did it. But uh, that part of the driveway was dark, and I wanted to be able to see. Well, I was up on the ladder, and my arms were lifted, and I was, I was putting the thing up, and I just couldn't get the wire nut working right and all the other things. And it wasn't long before I couldn't keep my arms up any longer than about three or four seconds at a time. Now, I tell my kids I'm getting old and decrepit, and they don't want to hear it, but it's true. I mean, my arms are just not what they used to be. Moses, however, was... 80 years, 80 plus years old at this point. And so it wasn't long before his arms could barely be lifted. And if you don't think it's any big deal, just stand sometime with your arms perpendicular at your side and see how long you can keep that up. And so it was painful and sacrificial for Moses to be physically praying. But how much more the wrenching of the soul, the pouring out of effort in prayer, not just the physical arms lifted to heaven, but also the, the, the yearning prayer, the fervent prayer, that's hard work. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's hard work. It's sacrificial work to keep at it and to keep praying. A sacrificial work 
And then fifthly, prevailing prayer. Verse 11 again. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. You know what this is teaching? Keep praying until the battle's over. Now, this is a great weakness for me, I must confess. I'm not great at prevailing prayer. Do you know what I mean? The kind of prayer where you keep praying until the issue has been resolved. Whether it's a brother needing employment, or a medical condition, or somebody needing salvation, to keep praying in a prevailing way until the matter is resolved. Now, that takes spiritual maturity, I think. It's hard to do. I think often about um, Luke 18, where Jesus told the parable to show that, that we should always pray and not give up. Luke 18:1 it says that. We should always pray and not give up. In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in the town who kept coming with, to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time the judge refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so they won't, she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. That's an interesting parable, isn't it? I mean, really interesting. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. How much more would God hear you if you'll come and pray? He's not the unjust judge. But there's clearly a lesson in both the story of Moses on the hill over the battle with the Amalekites and the prevailing widow. You've got to keep praying. God isn't going to give it to you with the first two, minute, two minutes of prayer. Now you may say, why? If he's eventually going to give it to me, why not right away? Because he wants you to learn to prevail upon him in prayer. To keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. As one Puritan put it, if seeking doesn't work, if asking doesn't work, then seek. And if seeking doesn't work, then knock. That's the idea he gets out of it. And whether that's accurate or not, the point is prevailing in prayer. That we continue until we get what we're looking for. A great example of prevailing prayer is George Mueller. And I, I remember this uh, from his biography. I am now in 1864 waiting upon God for certain blessings for which I have daily besought him for 19 years and six months without one day's intermission. Every day for 19 years and six months I've prayed for this thing. Still the full answer is not yet given concerning the conversion of certain individuals. He's praying for lost people to be saved. For 19 years and six months he's prayed for them. In the meantime, I have received many thousands of answers to prayer, other prayers, but not this one. And so I keep at it. I have also prayed daily without intermission for the conversion of other individuals for about 10 years, for others about six or seven years, for others four, for some three, some two years, and for others about 18 months. And still the answer is not yet granted concerning these persons. Do you love that word yet? But I'm going to keep praying until it is. I'm daily continuing in prayer and expecting the answer. Be encouraged, dear Christian reader, with fresh earnestness to give yourself to prayer if you can only be sure that you ask for things which are for the glory of God. Now, that's a good filter, isn't it? We're, we're talking about prevailing prayer for those things that are revealed in God's word to be for his glory. We keep praying for them. And so I yearn to grow in prevailing prayer in the year 2004. Don't you? Don't you want to learn this lesson of keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking until he gives what you ask? Second lesson is human determination and cooperation in seeking God. When Moses' arms got tired, did they give up? They say, oh well. Say, all right, I guess we'll lose. No, they found a way, didn't they? They put a stone for Moses to sit on, and they held up his arms. And so this is a picture of determination, namely that we're not going to give up. We can't lose this battle. We've got to keep praying. But here's a man who's praying and interceding, and he's growing weary in the task. 
we've got to support them. And so we have also a picture of cooperation. The full fruit of it is the, the body of Christ in the New Testament, isn't it? That, that we, it, when one part is honored, every part's honored with it. When one part feels weak, every part uh, comes alongside and strengthens. And so if we're going to be involved in prevailing prayer, it could be that we need to strengthen each other in it and help each other. Moses needed Aaron and Hur, didn't he? He needed them that day. He couldn't do it on his own. As great as he was, he couldn't do it on his own. And so he was dependent on Aaron and Hur, just like Joshua and the army was dependent on Moses. There's interdependence there. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has been hailed as one of the greatest preachers ever. Some people consider the prince of, prince of preachers, and tons of his sermons have been printed, and it was the place to go if you could ever go here and preach. You just knew that God was in that place. But he once said, if you want to know the secret of the power of the pulpit here at the Metro Metropolitan Tabernacle, it is that my people pray for me. They literally did. They got together. They assembled and prayed while he was preaching. Now, I've talked to Landis about this, and Landis, has, uh, Landis Barnes has been uh, faithfully praying uh, for me while I was preaching for a long time now. Um, he needs help, just like Moses. Um, it gets wearying to be in the prayer room alone. And so I think it's too big a burden for any one person to bear. I think many hands makes light work. And if you want a spiritual application here, would you be willing to join with Landis in praying during the worship service on a rotating basis, maybe once every two months or once every three months? Would you be willing? If you're willing, would you raise your hand, please, right now? That number of people means none of you would have to pray through the worship service any more than once every three months, I estimate. Would you please be willing to communicate with the office? And I don't know who you are. I didn't ask for your number. But call and say, I was among those that raised my hand. I'm also going to put out information in the bulletin. We're going to get a prayer schedule going. I don't want to give up on the prayer ministry. But I don't want Landis to have to miss seven or eight straight months of preaching either. I think that there's a balance here. And so this is a very specific application, and it very much fits Exodus 17, doesn't it? We need to lift up his hands and lift each other up in prayer. So let's be faithful in doing that. We need each other. Now, what kind of lessons come from this? Well, we remember the lessons. God said, get a scroll and write it down so that we never forget. We never forget. And so he, they built an altar, and right on the scroll, he said, is something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. If something's written down, it's not going to be forgotten. We're going to remember and we're going to be committed to it. And so there God prophesied very clearly that the Amalekites would be wiped out and he wanted them wiped out because of what they did in attacking Israel in their weakness. So also Balaam prophesied that they would be wiped out. And God gave the job to somebody. Do you remember? Who got the job of wiping out the Amalekites? Well, it was King Saul. You remember this? In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul got the job to wipe out the Amalekites. And he says very plainly, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent you to anoint, sent to anoint you king over the people of Israel. So now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That was the command. And why? Because of what happens here in Exodus 17. Did uh, King Saul obey? No, he didn't. He spared the best of the flock, and he spared King Agag and took him alive. 
And so who was it that finished the job? It was Samuel himself who put Agag to death by the word of the Lord. And so he says very seriously here in Exodus 17, write it down as a memorial, I want this done. And Saul lost his kingship as a result of that. Along came a man after God's own heart, David, who would do all that God commanded because to obey is better than sacrifice. God intended this to be finished. Now what lesson do we take from this? Well, we've already taken one. Those of you who have raised your hands, you know who you are. Join with us in praying, corporate prayer for the church. But be faithful in your own personal prayer life as well. Be faithful to pray with knowledge and with zeal, praying effectively, persevering prayer, and lifting each other up in prayer as well. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.